Last Sunday, we started a new sermon series looking at specific Jesus encounters in Scripture and their relevance for us today. And as I mentioned last week, during Jesus' approximate three and a half years of, of public ministry, uh, a very diverse group of people had encounters with him. The religious and the non-religious, the rich and the poor, the powerful and the weak, the oppressor and the oppressed, the insiders and the outsiders, the healthy and the sick, and the proud and the humble. They all had encounters with Jesus. And each of those encounters, as I mentioned, were significant and unique. And Jesus was always consistent in them. He always spoke truthfully, and he always spoke and acted from a foundation of love. Last Sunday, we looked at an encounter Jesus had with a, a man who had been born blind. And today, we're going to look at an encounter Jesus had with a Roman officer, a Roman centurion. And we find that in Luke's Gospel, chapter 7, verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people, we say, well, what had Jesus just finished saying? Well, he had just finished his, what's, what some theologians will refer to as the Sermon on the Plain as opposed to the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Plain is kind of an, an abbreviated version of the Sermon on the Mount. It contains some of the same teachings of Jesus, but, but not all of the ones we find in the Sermon on the Mount. And those teachings focus on things like what brings blessing or sorrow into your life, about love for enemies, about not judging others, about how to identify a good person or a bad person, and the importance of building your life on a good foundation. And so when Jesus had finished saying all of those things to the people, he returned to Capernaum. At that time, the highly valued slave of a Roman officer, a centurion, was sick and near death. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent some respected Jewish elders to ask him to come and heal his slave. So they earnestly begged Jesus to help the man. If anyone deserves your help, he does, they said, for he loves the Jewish people and even built a synagogue for us. So Jesus went with them. But just before they arrived at the house, the officer sent some friends to say, Lord, don't trouble yourself by coming to my home, for I am not worthy of such an honor. I'm not even worthy to come and meet you. Just say the word from where you are, and my servant will be healed. I know this because I'm under the authority of my superior officers, and I have authority over my soldiers. I only need to say go and they go or come and they come or if I say to my slaves, do this and they do it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Turning to the crowd that was following him, he said, I tell you, I haven't seen faith like this in all Israel. And when the officer's friends returned to this house, they found the slave completely healed. Now in Matthew's gospel, he tells a, a, a version of this story. And there, there's a few differences, as is typical in a lot of the gospel accounts. 
But let's take a closer look at some of the specific details in this Jesus encounter that we see in Luke's gospel. And, and the details in, in all of the, the scripture narratives, they, they, they give us insight into the encounter. You know, sometimes we'll just read through some, it's like, and, and our brains will just pick out certain things like, okay, this, this happened and that happened, okay, great. But, but it's in the details that we find out really important things. Uh, things that, that help us to understand the, the depth of what actually took place. Uh, things like the words that were used or, or in comparison to, to other scriptures or the historical and cultural context of the event itself. And these are things that the original writers of the scripture and their readers would have naturally understood. Right? They were living in that time and so you know, Jesus would have spoken words and immediately the, 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 his audience and those who read the written accounts would have understood the, the context, but we don't. Uh, we're, we're not only 2,000 years removed from those events, but we're also completely culturally removed from those events. And so it helps us to look at the details and to, to get better insight into that. Uh, you know, we, we read through our own understanding of words. You know, you say one word, you know, I might use a word for you and that word might mean something different than it means to me or somebody else. Certainly that's the truth when you're, when you're translating from other languages. And then also, obviously, we, we look at things, we read things, we understand things through our own lens of how we see our, through our, you know, our cultural experiential lenses. And so, you know, we, we come to everything with somewhat of a distorted view. We, we're looking through an incomplete lens. And so we need help kind of to, to give us better eyesight, right? It's like when you, you have eye problems, you go to the doctor, figures out what's wrong with your eyes and make a corrective lens and all of a sudden you can see better. Well, well having more insight into these things helps us to see better, see God better, see others better, see ourselves better. Otherwise, we might miss out on important truths and also we might end up uh, misinterpreting or misapplying what we're reading in Scripture. And so this emphasizes the importance of proper Bible study, not just Bible reading. Bible reading's good, but Bible study gives us much more insight and keeps us in a space of, of clarity, of understanding. Thankfully, God has gifted us with teachers to help us understand these things. Uh, one of the gifts that, that in Ephesians Paul writes that God gave to the church is teachers. These are the biblical scholars who have devo devoted their entire lives to not only translating scripture from the original languages but also studying the historical and cultural context of that time. And so these are people that God has given to the church to help us understand what Scripture says and means. And so let's look at a few of the, the details that we find in the story that we just read. Uh, it says that it, it happened in, the, in this town of Capernaum. And so we know from the historians that Capernaum at that time was a town of probably about 1,500 people right on the shores of Galilee. It was the hometown of a number of Jesus' disciples. Peter, John, James, Andrew, and Matthew were all from this town. 
And it was the center of Jesus' ministry. His, the bulk of his ministry was kind of centered. He went out from that space. Some, some even said that maybe he did have a home there at one point. But he spent a lot of time, not only in Capernaum, the surrounding areas, but it was kind of a, a going out and coming back base for him. He performed many miracles there. And scripture says that he regularly spoke in the local synagogue, the local place of worship in Capernaum. Which means that in that town, everyone knew about him, where to find him, and most people had probably heard him and seen him firsthand. So that's kind of the setting. That's, that's where this took place, which, which gives us insight as we go into the story a little bit more. And then there's this Roman centurion. Centurions were, were Roman citizens. They were, they were experienced in military combat. They had natural leadership abilities. And they oversaw a group of about 100 Roman soldiers. And so this centurion in this story, he was stationed at a Roman outpost in this town of Capernaum. And his job was to keep the peace and to oversee Rome's financial interests in the region, including the collection of the much-hated taxes. So his job, so he was a foreigner there. Now keep in mind that Rome at this point had already been occupying, as a foreigner, as an aggressor, had been occupying that region of Palestine for about 100 years already. So the Roman presence was well entrenched in this area. And there was this long-standing conflict and tension because of it between Rome and the Jewish people, the people who lived there. It was, it was a, an enemy occupying your land. And occasionally, violence broke out. In fact, the, 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 the Jewish temple in Jerusalem was completely destroyed by the Romans about 40 years after Jesus' death uh, for, uh, for punishment for a Jewish uprising. In fact, Jesus prophesied about the destruction of the temple when he was alive. And so those tensions were ongoing. And so we're in this setting now in this town where Jesus was living. He was speaking in the synagogue. He was, he was performing these miracles. But among it all, there is this real life situation where you had this Roman presence, these outsiders, these despised Romans who were enforcing their policies and purposes upon this Jewish population. The Jews wanted them gone. They wanted to be liberated. In fact, a lot of them saw that one day God would send his Messiah and deliver us from the Romans and establish his rule amongst his people. And so in the context of this Roman century and then his soldiers and the local Jewish population, it was tense and it was complicated. And then, he, and then we, we, we meet in the story where we're, he puts the word out through some people he knew because his slave was sick and dying. Now, slavery in, in that culture at that time is often different than what we think of when we think of modern-day slavery. Uh, slavery in that time was, was more a, a form of um, indentured servitude, what they call it. It's like, you know, a slave kind of, they, they might have been brought into the household by somebody, but 
But in many instances, for them, it was an opportunity that they would never have otherwise. They, they, they gave of themselves completely in order to have a chance at life. And so if you do a study of slavery in the ancient world of that context, yeah, there were some bad things that happened, but a lot of it too was, was there were actually opportunities for slaves to have these close relationships with their masters. And, and so sometimes when we're reading those, uh, about those instances in scripture, we, we can't read it through our modern day lens understanding of what that word means. It often meant something different in that culture. And so we see as we're reading through this is that uh, th- this wasn't a situation where, where, where this was an abusive relationship of power between this Roman centurion and his slave or servant. He actually cared about this person. In fact, you could go as far as to say he loved this person. And he wanted to do something about it. He was even willing to cross unacceptable social and religious boundaries to have something good happen for this young person he cared about. And so in this story then we're introduced this relationship between the centurion and the local Jewish community, the, the Jewish elders, which he asked to go and ask Jesus if he would heal my servant. And the elders went and told Jesus, you know, he said, hey, this, this guy, you know, he, this is happening and, and he loves us. And, and he even built us a synagogue and, 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 and they felt some indebtedness to this centurion. And, and, and this speaks into the, the social relationship that existed among them uh, that's, that's called uh, patronage. Because the centurion was trying to keep the peace. He was trying to, you know, do a good thing in the community and, and make sure everything was okay. And so he built the synagogue. And so in that, the Jewish people would have felt some sense of indebtedness to him. It's like, well, we have to go and do this thing for him because he did this good thing for us. It's kind of like, you know, he did this, we do that. You scratch my back, I scratch yours. And so it wasn't necessarily them doing it out of concern for him or his slave, but really out of obligation. More than likely that their motive was contrary to what Jesus had just previously spoke about in Luke 6 on his Sermon on the Plain. Where he says, But to you who are willing to listen, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who hurt you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, offer the other cheek also. If someone demands your coat, offer them your shirt also. Give to anyone who asks, and when things are taken away from you, don't try to get it back. Do to others as you would like them do to you. If you love only those who love you, why should you get credit for that? Even sinners love those who love them. But if you do good only to those, and if you do good only to those who do good to you, why should you get credit? Even sinners do that much. And if you lend money only to those who can repay you, why should you get credit? Even sinners will lend to other sinners for a full return. Love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to be repaid. Then your reward from heaven will be very great. And you will truly be acting as children of the Most High, for he is kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. You must be compassionate just as your father is compassionate. 
Jesus spoke those words into a culture that, that, that couldn't comprehend that sort of uh, approach to life, approach to people. And in the responsiveness of the elders, it's their, their reaction was more and more of like, it's not out of love for enemy, it's out of obligation to enemy. And it might appear on the surface that the Roman officer, the centurion, was taking advantage of his hierarchical position. But his subsequent actions prove otherwise when the Roman centurion sending some people, his friends. So, so first of all, we see you know, he sent these Jewish elders to go and talk to Jesus. And when Jesus is on his way to the centurion's house, and then the centurion sends some friends, some other people, probably some non-Jews, to intervene and say, Jesus, well, I, mean, I, I didn't mean for you to come. Like, I literally do not deserve you to come to my house. I, I'm under no obligation. I don't feel that you must do this because I'm the centurion. I'm not worthy to have you come into my home. So obviously he wasn't doing something to take advantage of his position. He was just trying to communicate in, in ways that he felt were appropriate with this person that he did not feel worthy of their grace. This action revealed his heart and his motive and that he wasn't taking advantage of his position. And his actions and words also revealed his recognition of Jesus' unique authority. For he himself was a man who understood the principles of authority. He said, I get it, Jesus. I understand authority. I'm under, I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm in submission to the, the authority of my officers. And my soldiers are in submission to my authority. If, if my officer tells me what to do, I do it. And if I tell my soldiers what to do, they do it. And Jesus, I know your authority. And if you just say for my servant to be healed, he'll be healed. Because that's how authority works. He understood. And he also understood and believed that Jesus had this authority to heal his sick and dying servant with this spoken word. And that Jesus didn't even need to be present for that healing to happen because he had authority. All he had to do was say it. This revealed the Roman centurion's great insight into who Jesus was and his great faith, his belief and trust in Jesus. One thing we notice towards the end of there, the, this text is that there was a crowd. Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Turning to the crowd that was following him, he said, I tell you, I haven't seen this faith Faith like this in all of Israel. Crowds regularly followed Jesus around. And the crowds always consisted of the curious and the hostile. Those who were interested in who is this Jesus and those who were, I can't stand Jesus. He's a threat to us. Imagine always being under that kind of microscope. Always having your every word and action scrutinized. But Jesus intentionally lived his life on display for all to see and hear. He wanted the world to see and know who God was. And he was God in the flesh. But as much as he was God, he was also human. And it must have been wearying. Which is why Jesus regularly sought solitude in lonely places to commune 
with the Father. Jesus, fully God and fully human. And then we see here Jesus affirming the centurion's faith and saying it was greater than the faith of the Israelites. That would have been super offensive to the crowd. <laughs> that he was basically taking this outsider, this despised Roman who they hated, who they wanted out of their land, and say that this guy you hate, this guy that you want nothing to do with, he has more faith than you do. That would have been unbelievably offensive, which is why there were so many people who became Jesus' haters and wanted him gone and wanted him dead. The things he said were incredibly offensive to them. He said that this outer outsider had greater faith than the insiders. In fact, this was the first recorded instance of Jesus offering grace to a non-Jewish outsider. And Matthew's recording of this encounter uh, emphasizes this insider-outsider contrast, this Jew-Gentile contrast. And it includes a prophecy from Jesus about the worldwide expansion of the gospel among non-Jews who put their faith in Jesus and the exclusion of many Jews who reject Jesus as the Messiah. Revolutionary stuff. And the other thing to note from this encounter with Jesus is that Jesus did heal from a distance. And this was the first of three instances in the Gospels where Jesus healed a person from a distance. And all three of those healings have these same four things in common. They all involved non-Jews. They all involved outsiders. And the people needing healing weren't able to come to Jesus because of their severe physical condition and none of them asked Jesus for their own healing but somebody else cared for them enough to intervene on their behalf and none of them ever physically saw or touched Jesus so neither did they ask for it they never actually ever saw or touched Jesus in those encounter moments perhaps they did later on we don't know so how does this short passage of Scripture, how does this Jesus encounter that we see in Luke's Gospel, how does it apply to us? How might it apply to us today? Well, a few things. Number one, God has grace for outsiders. I was once an outsider, and many, if not most of you, were too. I haven't always believed in Jesus and I used to live life on my own terms. But I encountered Jesus and he welcomed me inside and changed my life. And perhaps there are people here this morning who you would still identify yourself as an outsider. Or perhaps you feel like one sometimes. You feel like you, you, you've never stepped into that place of faith in Jesus. Or you have doubts about that. And I want to assure you this morning that Jesus sees you and knows you and loves you. And he's inviting you to believe in him. And to experience a new life of freedom in him. A life of faith without fear or shame. 
Or perhaps you look at certain other people around you as outsiders and you treat them like outsiders, much like the Jewish people at that time treated the Gentiles, the non-Jews. They treated them as outsiders. They were excluded from participating in the life of God, in their places of worship and whatnot. So perhaps sometimes we look at other people in the same way, as outsiders, and we, we treat them as outsiders, and we, we don't extend to them the same grace that we ourselves have had extended to us. Or perhaps sometimes we even see ourselves as better than. Well, I'm an insider, and I'm certainly better than those outsiders. I mean, look at them. Look at how they live. Look at things they say and do and believe. Maybe it's an individual, or maybe it's a group of individuals that you don't like or disagree with or don't understand. But God is gracious to all, and we are commanded by him to treat everyone with the same grace. It's a sad irony that sometimes I've, I've observed more godlike qualities in people who identify themselves as outsiders than some people who identify themselves as insiders. And Jesus said, in fact, he said just before Again, this miraculous act that he performed. He said that you can identify people by their fruit, by their actions, not merely their words. We are never to judge those we consider outsiders, but rather to extend to them the same grace and loving kindness that we ourselves have received from Jesus, always. Jesus spoke about this, and then he did it, right? He always did it. He, he, he taught about things and then he acted it out in real life so people could see this works in the real world we live in. It's not just an idea. So who are the Roman centurions in your life that you don't see the same way God sees them, right? We all have these blind spots. We, 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 ha we have this natural human tendency to judge others. Who are the people you see as outsiders and, and your judgment of them has blinded you to see God's grace already at work in their lives? Right? Jesus would say things like, the kingdom of God is near to you. Right? Who are the people in your life that you, you, you see as an outsider, but yet if you look at their lives, you can see God's at work in this person. They are saying things and doing things that are exactly what Jesus said and did. Or Jesus said, to do and say. So God is obviously present at work in this person's life. They're not as much of an outsider as I think they are. In fact, the kingdom of God is already breaking into their lives. A second thing we see in this scripture passage is the recognition of Jesus' authority. And Jesus often referred to his authority. And others would acknowledge his authority. And be marveled by it as, and say he speaks with authority. He acts with authority. It's important for us to recognize and remember Jesus' authority over all things. His place of ultimate power. In Matthew 28, 18, Jesus said, I have been given all authority and in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Jesus has all authority and he sends us into our world with his authority to proclaim his good news and do his good work as spirit-empowered representatives on earth, as his 
spirit-empowered representatives on earth. And if you don't believe this is true, if you don't believe in Jesus' authority and that he has given you authority, you'll live in places of fear, doubt, and fruitlessness, frankly. But if you believe it's true, you'll live in places of peace and hope and fruitfulness. And finally, what we see in here is the the necessity and, and the primacy, the most important thing of having faith. As I mentioned, after we had sung our songs of worship, uh, faith is a, is a dominant theme. It's one of the dominant themes in Scripture. And it's one of the central themes of every encounter Jesus has with somebody. It's faith. Faith is the only way into a right relationship with God. Not our intelligence, not our knowledge, not our abilities, our status, our experiences, our behavior, or anything else. It's faith. It's belief in and trust in Jesus. The Roman centurion's faith changed his life. It also changed the life, obviously, of his dying servant. And we can be confident it changed the lives of all the other outsiders who saw and heard what happened. Imagine, I mean, you know, this was the first time, right? And so Jesus is performing all these miracles, speaking these words to all of these Jewish people. And the outsiders are standing on the outside looking in saying, what about us? What about us? And Jesus broke that door down. He, he demolished that barrier. He says, no, no, no. This is for everyone. This isn't just for the insiders. This is for all people. And so the people who saw this, the, the friends of the centurion, other outsiders, suddenly they're like, oh, God's grace is for me too. It changed a lot of lives. The faith of this one person changed a lot of lives. They now saw new possibilities for themselves. If God extends grace to one, why not extend it to me? How has your faith changed your life? How is your faith continuing to impact your life? Your faith in Jesus, your belief and trust in him. How has it changed your life and how is it continuing to impact your life? And how has and how does your faith impact the lives of those around you? Right? The, the centurion's faith impacted his life, but it also impacted the life of those around him. How is your faith impacting the lives of those around you? How does your f- belief and trust in Jesus touch other people's lives? Family members, friends, neighbors, people at work, people at school, people in the community. How do you, how does Jesus in you affect people around you? Does Jesus in you make a difference in your relationships with other people? A genuine faith actually looks like something. It begins in the heart and then expresses outwardly through our words and our actions. It literally touches and changes other people's lives. A genuine faith always expresses itself in love for God and love for others and a genuine faith is always empowered by the Spirit. I want to invite our worship team to come up.
I want to invite you to stand with me. And let's allow the Holy Spirit to impress the truths of God's word upon our hearts this morning. Jesus, we come before you this morning with grateful hearts. We thank you that these words were written down for our benefit so that we could know you, so that we could have faith, so that we could believe and trust in you and experience this, this new life that you offer, a life of freedom, a, a life that, that isn't about fear and shame and doubt, but a life that's about peace and hope and power and strength and freedom. Jesus, that you love us with an everlasting love. You love us so much that you, you gave your life for us. There is no greater love. And so here we are, and, and as, these, as these individuals, God, who are doing our best to live our lives. But you know it's not enough. You know that we need you. We, you know that we need the indwelling presence of your Spirit to be the people you created us to be, to live this life of love, to live this life of faith. And so we ask that you would help us to do that. You would help us to, to have minds that don't go quickly to places of, of judgment, of looking at others as outsiders, as different. But we see other people through your eyes, Jesus, and extend to them the same grace. Jesus, that we would recognize the authority that you have. That you have all authority over all things. And that you have given us your authority and so we don't have to live in fear. We don't have to live in doubt. We don't have to be so consumed with our own lives and our own survival that we can trust you in your goodness and in your power. And God, I pray that you would help us to have faith this morning. As we already prayed earlier, God, give us faith to believe. Give us faith to trust. Give us faith to, to live the life that you have given to us. Not in service to ourselves, but in service to you and to the world around us. Because Jesus, you said that that is where we experience the abundance of life itself. A life that looks outwardly. Your life in us expressing outwardly. So we pray you'd fill us this morning with the power of your spirit. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.